Hi everyone, welcome to Bradcast, the official radio show and podcast of uh, the University of Society of Graduate Students here at Western Ontario. I'm your host, Yusuf. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Muller. Awesome, and today we are here with Denny Chen, who is doing his PhD in uh, immunology and microbiology. So, Denny, I guess we want to know more about um, you and why you chose to go in this adventure of the world of very small. Uh, so what actually inspired me to pursue microbiology was actually near the end of high school. Uh, I was simply just watching videos on YouTube and uh, of course, <laughs> something got recommended on my uh, to watch list. And it was actually uh, a show called Monsters Inside Me. Um, I think that's actually an American show. So it's basically kind of like a documentary style uh, television show where they uh, show how people are living normal lives, but then they eventually suffer a very terrible infection from some sort of wow. microbe. And they go into detail about how that person is suffering and eventually diagnosing um, what that infective agent is. So it just yeah. really amazed me how something so small, so microscopic can- uh, It's so powerful. Yeah, yes, can do so much to someone. Dangerous. Life. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Denny, how would you describe something microscopic? Like I, I think of obviously looking at something under a microscope, but can you sort of unpack that for us a little bit? Uh, so, well, a lot of like what we need to work on is not really things you can see. Well, definitely bacteria isn't something you can really see if it's um, like single microbes, but um, in during an infection or um, in biofilms where bacteria are growing into large amounts, you can definitely see it when that happens. So um, sometimes you feel like you're working with something that doesn't feel very tangible, but at times you, you definitely know what you're working with. So uh, it's not always microscopic, even though it is microbiology. And what did you do before? So you, would do, you did your master's here at Western as well? No, I actually did my bachelor's at the University of Toronto in downtown oh, cool. Toronto. And, and was the field sufficiently similar or, or were, you, were you the sort of person who did something completely different after your undergrad studies? Uh, no, it was actually really similar. So actually, and I actually did my majors in microbiology and immunology at, wow. uh, for my undergrad before coming here. So that, that must be a good transition. And um, how, I guess your research, I had to actually Google how to pronounce that particular pathogen yes. that you're researching on, which is called, let me just go and check. It's called uh, Staphylococcus aureus. Is that the correct pronunciation? Uh, you're really close. It's Staphylococcus oh, okay. aureus, but... Okay, uh, cool. Yeah. You, you know, I don't see the difference, but I'll, I'll go with what <laughs> you said. So why did you become so fascinated by this particular pathogen and what are you working on nowadays about it? What uh, is it though? So Staphylococcus aureus uh, is a bacterium that infects many uh, different people each year. And in the United States alone, it actually causes about 20,000 deaths per year. What? Um, and uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to treat these infections because it's not, there are now many antibiotic resistant strains. Uh, one of them is uh, MRSA. So that stands for methicillin-resistant staph aureus. So this strain in particular is very dangerous because it's resistant to almost every antibiotic that people would normally use to treat these infections. 
And so there's maybe only like one or two more antibiotics that can be used to treat these infections. And yeah. with antibiotics, there's always going to be resistance. So in time, it's likely that it will also become resistant to those last one or two drugs. So just follow up about the resistant resistance part. That's really fascinating. Now, did these new strain, strains emerge as a byproduct of the kinds of antibiotics we already have? They sort of adapted to those antibiotics and be became a new kind of strain. Um, I'm saying this as someone who has very little to no knowledge about how these things work, though. So maybe you can clarify what I'm getting at. Yeah, uh, so you're definitely right. So uh, a long time ago, basically, when um, these antibiotics, which we routinely use, when they were first discovered, they were extremely effective. But eventually, Staph aureus acquires uh, different DNA elements from other bacteria. Um, and these DNA elements is what allows it to become resistant to these antibiotics. So Denny, what happens, you know, you've talked a lot about the, the resistant strains and the challenges with finding antibiotics. What treatment options, if any, are available if an infection cannot be cured via antibiotic? Uh, it's very difficult and it also depends on the type of infection uh, it causes. So one of the big ones is that uh, it causes infections associated with implants. So if the antibiotic simply doesn't work, you may have to simply replace the implant with a new one. And of course, that's very invasive and expensive. And of course, if you're doing such an invasive surgery, you're then introducing another opportunity for other bacteria to infect yet again. So it's not ideal and it's kind of just a temporary um, solution. So this is, you know, very, very timely, just talking about uh, infections given our, our current climate. Yeah. How would you maybe think your research has, has changed or, or how has your perspective changed, if at all, during COVID? Mm -hmm. uh, my perspective hasn't changed too much, but uh, it, a lot of attention is obviously focused on COVID itself. And it's not a bacterium, it's a virus. So I think a lot of people are focusing a lot more on viral infections. But I think it's important for people to not forget that bacterial infections are um, equally as important because like COVID received so much attention in part because it was such a, a big, such a, it introduced such a big wave of infections really quickly. But these bacterial infections are not suddenly gone just because COVID is present. Mm -hmm. So antibiotic resistance is uh, always developing. And um, now we see that it's super important to develop treatment options for COVID. But some of these, uh, we should also be developing um, antibiotics and generating more efforts towards antibiotic development as well, because eventually bacterial pathogens like Staph aureus can become as uh, endemic as uh, COVID. Wow. Well, um, could you tell us more about the difference between um, uh, bacterial infections and infection or, or diseases caused by viruses and how they differ in their treatment? Uh, so, Viruses, uh, there's a lot of debate whether a virus is considered living or not living. Um, so virus is usually a nucleic acid, so it's like DNA inside, yeah. inside a protein coat. However, a virus cannot, um, it cannot grow on its own. So it must infect the host. Uh, for COVID, it'll be humans, of course. So once it in, in gets inside a host, it'll, it'll be able to enter certain tissues 
um, and then use the uh, host cell machinery in order to replicate itself. So once it replicates, there's a lot more virus, which then leads to a positive feedback loop because now we can infect more cells and generate even more virus. Uh, but bacteria, they are actually living things. So they can synthesize their own DNA, their own proteins and all of that. They just need the nutrients and they can get that from you know, food. They, they don't necessarily have to colonize humans. Right. Uh, so you know, if you leave your food out for too long in, the, in a warm weather, bacteria is going to grow on that. Right. Um, May I ask a follow-up question on that actually? Um, so in the case of viruses, uh, I guess it's they have a tendency to become less lethal over time precisely because they want to be able to spread to more hosts. If they are extremely lethal, well, they won't be able to um, spread. Uh, sp spread and carry out their functions. And so over time, usually what we, what we see, I, I think I, I hope I remember this correctly, that lethal, the lethal, uh, the mortality rate actually decreases for that particular strain or something like that. Um, is it the same? Is it true also for bacteria causing diseases as well? Or is the trajectory a bit different? Uh, I'd say it's pretty similar. Uh, so Staph aureus in particular, it's actually present in about 30% of all individuals. It's present in the nose as well as on the skin. So that's wait, where wait. it's... Are you saying that we're four people over here. There's a good chance one of us has it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah, most, it, most of the time it doesn't cause disease. It's asymptomatic. So it's present on your skin and in your nose, but it's the times when it uh, is accidentally introduced into uh, other deeper body sites. That's when it's uh, a big problem. And how do you know if it is a bigger problem? How do you know you've said that it's likely that, that out of the four of us, we, we might have it. But how do we know when it becomes a bigger problem? Are we going to feel symptoms? What what's the uh, what's the tip off there? Uh, yeah, uh, if when it becomes a problem, you'll start um, getting disease symptoms. So one of the most common um, infections it causes is skin and soft tissue infection, and most of these infections are actually not very invasive and they're easily treatable. They're not life threatening at all, but uh, it can become a problem if uh, it gets even deeper into that. So it can cause once it gets like even deeper into into your body, it can cause infections like in your heart, in your bones. Um, so, but if it's limited to the skin and you treat it quickly enough, then it wouldn't be a problem. So, you know, Danny, what are you what are you hoping to do with uh, with your research finding? You've shared a lot of important insights today around antibiotics and and uh, the idea that you know bacteria are becoming less and less able to be treated. What what's your end goal with with this research? Well, uh, for the lay audience who uh, don't know, uh, they, my research is about discovering and characterizing a new antibiotic to treat these infections caused by drug-resistant strains of Staph aureus, like MRSA. So what I'm hoping to accomplish by the end of my PhD is to publish uh, some of these results. And uh, for the big picture goal is to really um, develop this new antibiotic and hopefully translate it to um, the actual clinic so that it can be used. So, so, so Danny, I think in your abstract, you mentioned that you want to uh, come up with new kinds of antibiotics, which have new modes of action. Yes. And they might remedy or be appropriate for those more resistant kind of strains of this particular 
pathogen. So I was wondering, could you explain to us what you mean by new modes of action? And also, how do you go about creating these sort of antibiotics? Yep. Uh, so most of the antibiotics that we use and that Staph aureus has eventually become resistant to are uh, based on penicillin class antibiotics. So these drugs, they basically target the cell wall of bacteria and they prevent the bacteria from making these cell walls, which are essential for the bacteria to survive. Um, so they're all just targeting just the cell wall. That's just one component of the cell, but cells would need many different other, uh, other components to survive and to grow. So what we need are antibiotics that perhaps target a different core um, component or core function of the bacteria because the bacteria likely haven't encountered very much of these type of drugs because they're only encountering these penicillin class antibiotics. And how can we actually look for these antibiotics? That's a good question. Uh, there are various ways. A lot of people have been doing um, different types of um, modifications on pre-existing antibiotics because these structures of these drugs are very specific and hopefully by modifying just a little bit, like tweaking it, you yeah. can basically sensitize the bacteria to these antibiotics again. Uh, another method, which is one that I'm actually used in, what I'm actually using in the lab is to uh, check uh, if other bacteria make antibiotics. So I don't know if you guys know, but antibiotics was originally isolated from a fungus. So bacteria and other microbes are actually in constant um, warfare with one another. Uh, I mentioned, for example, Staph aureus is present on your skin, but there's actually a lot of other bacteria that are living on your skin, whether, uh, <laughs> whether uh, that's appealing or not. That is, <laughs> you know, I'll be taking a shower after I our conversation is done. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, you know, there's just so much bacteria everywhere. <laughs> and there's, of course, limited space in food. So bacteria are going to secrete different kind of chemicals to kill off one another so that the food is available for themselves and not for <laughs> the other bacteria. So what I basically did was look at other uh, species of bacteria that we know may mm. colonize together with Staph aureus because these ones are likely competing for space and nutrients. And I have actually found a particular strain of bacteria that makes a certain drug that is able to inhibit the growth of Staph aureus. So that's wow. what my uh, PhD work is based off of. And Denny, I'm wondering, given that uh, it sounds like a lot of work is, is in your PhD world, is in the lab. Yes. Have you found that due to COVID, you've had to alter or change what you're doing because you haven't been able perhaps to access the lab? And how has that impacted your work? Uh, yes. So like you said, it's, I do spend a lot of time in the lab to do the actual work. So during the uh, like the peak, I guess the peak time of COVID when all the labs got shut down at Western, it was a pretty difficult time because it definitely interfered with my routine of uh, being productive. And by being at home, I don't have access to very many tools that can advance my research. So when I was at home during those times, I would be basically trying to read up on more literature to get more ideas to do more experiments. But all of this was basically planning for things that I would do eventually when I got into the lab. So it definitely felt like I wasn't really making much progress during COVID. Ah, well, I have more to 
uh, ask about COVID-19 as well. But before to start, another question as well, Denny. So I was thinking about superbugs. So you here are creating new antibiotics with different modes of action to combat something that's causing more and more harm and something that's becoming more lethal and some strains. But what about this concept of having as a response to more and more stronger antibiotics, even stronger uh, pathogen strains that cause remarkable harms possibly. Um, could you tell us more about the concept of superbugs and the worry that some scientists might have uh, in how the future may look like? Yep, so superbugs is basically just a general term that refers to microbes that are pathogenic and are resistant to many different antibiotics. Uh, so the only way to really combat these infections caused by superbugs is to get new antibiotics. And unfortunately, there is a very high chance that these superbugs will become resistant to these antibiotics as well. So a lot of people are trying to develop antibiotics in which resistance cannot arise. So that's by, that happens by targeting some sort of core function that absolutely cannot be changed in any way. Otherwise, the cell will die. So that's how you kind of prevent resistance from happening. But uh, some of these drugs have been shown to not induce resistance, uh, but they are far away from being actually used in the clinic. Um, and whether in real life, uh, if they cause resistance or not, that's uh, up for debate because all of these things are obviously done in uh, laboratory controlled conditions. And I guess I was also thinking, how has COVID-19 impacted your research? And how do you think will, ch will change for you in the few months, in the coming months? Uh, so as, uh, Chelsea, uh, as I told Chelsea earlier, it's made it pretty difficult in the beginning because I really had no access to the lab. I couldn't really do any work. Um, but now that um, Ontario as a whole is kind of reopening, that's allowed me to get back into the lab, even though I'm not going in as often as I did before COVID. Uh, but I'm pretty hopeful that things will return to pretty much uh, normal, at least for me working in the lab. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, thinking about uh, your, your research and uh, COVID, is there any exciting publications in the works? You mentioned you've got time at home that you've been doing more literature searches and kind of thinking about the next steps for your experiments. Is there any conferences that you're thinking you'd like to apply to or publications that you're working on that are really exciting for you right now? Uh, so I do have uh, one manuscript that I'm working on and it's uh, very close to completion. Um, so I don't want to give away too much because it's not actually published yet. But absolutely, um, like I mentioned earlier, I, I identified an antibiotic that is produced by a different species of bacteria, and it's mm -hmm. able to antagonize the growth of Staph aureus. And it's pretty unique because um, it doesn't target the cell wall biosynthesis like many other antibiotics do. So that's a new mode of action. Like mm -hmm. that—that's what we talked about earlier. Um, but interestingly, it has another um, like secondary effect, which we did not expect. And that's what we're trying to uh, characterize more on now. So this secondary effect is that it's somehow able to also reduce the number of toxins that are being produced by the bacteria. So Staph aureus can cause a lot of disease, 
in part because it's invading and growing, but also because it's secreting a lot of toxins that kills a lot of different cell types in your body. So by both uh, reducing the growth of bacteria as well as preventing it from making as much toxins, um, it shows that this drug is able to do multiple things at once. And that's pretty exciting for me. I was wondering if you are also thinking about or studying some other pathogens that might be similar to the one that you're researching on primarily, and whether or not uh, you could maybe find some links between the successful antibiotics for those pathogens and maybe make some modifications to use them in this area as well. Uh, well, our lab is mainly focused on MRSA, Staph aureus. So I think that going to study other pathogens is kind of beyond the scope of the PhD. Oh, okay. That is definitely something I'm interested in as well. Uh, so what I'm hoping to pursue after my PhD is to do um, similar type of work that I'm doing now, but I'm definitely excited to expand this type, this type of work to other superbugs. Sorry, Danny, that I interrupt. It's just like I have a quick question because when I was hearing that you had these two bugs that produce like one toxin that kills the other, how does the experiment work? Like, do you grow them together in a culture, in a cell culture, and see the reactions? Or I'm just curious because I've never worked with, with yeah. bacteria. So, uh, so there are a few different assays you can use to determine whether one bacteria is killing another. Uh, the one I use is actually very simple. So uh, I guess you guys are all familiar with a, like an agar plate, right? It's a petri dish with solid media on top. So what I basically did was I took a cotton swab, a very basic, and then I just swabbed a ton of MRSA all over the plate. And then I took a bit of my other strain, the uh, antibiotic producing strain, uh, it was grown in liquid, so then I just took a little bit of that liquid and I spotted it on top of MRSA, and then I just let it grow overnight. And then the next day, you can see that, of course, MRSA has grown all over that agar plate because that's I've swabbed it all over such a nutrient-rich media. However, uh, you also see the growth of my antibiotic-producing strain, and right around that strain, you don't see any MRSA growing around it because it's likely secreting something that is diffusing throughout the media and killing Staph aureus. So it's unable to grow very close to my bacteria. It sounds to me like there's uh, a lot of very delicate yet dangerous substances you're, you're working with in your lab. Um, just for the, the novice, which would be me, I haven't been in a lab, could you tell us a little bit about the safety precautions you have to take on a day-to-day -day in the lab to ensure that, that you're keeping yourself safe? Um, so, as I mentioned, Staph aureus is really only dangerous once it gets inside your body. So as long as you're taking very uh, basic and common precautions like uh, washing your hands frequently, not just basically avoiding direct contact with the bacteria, then uh, it's pretty safe. Right. I'm wondering, uh, I usually ask this question, it's, um, do you have any favorite movie that is relevant or related to your research? And why do you like that movie or dislike that movie? I'm actually not that into <laughs> sci-fi <laughs> movies, surprisingly. <laughs> um, but 
there, the movies that do uh, relate to my research, I guess, would be one called Contagion. Or, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Harry Potter's watched it recently. Yeah, yeah that was uh, trending. In, uh, Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Trending you know, everywhere. That in pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I, think I, I have a story about that as well. Like uh, the Contagion one was number two on my Netflix when I was about to watch it. And I was with a couple of friends at that time. And then uh, we played it and it turned out to be become number one as we played it. So we felt really happy because we contributed to that trend change. That's <laughs> but, very impressive. <laughs> basically, any zombie movie is uh, related <laughs> to infection. So. <laughs> well, and you mentioned the YouTube show at the beginning when we were talking at the top of the show today you mentioned that your whole impetus for your research you watched the in high school a youtube video yes um, yes called monsters inside me <laughs> that's a super cool thing uh, there's also a channel called i'm not sure if you are aware of this uh in an in a nutshell no it i haven't a, heard of that oh you, sh you should there is some amazing videos on some of the stuff that you're studying it's highly accessible and quite likable actually um so we're we just have a couple of minutes left i wanted to ask you about um if if there's any social media websites that you'd like to share with us or how people can contact you perhaps uh yeah i'm actually if, not very big on social media uh i don't share too much of what i do i know there are uh a lot of people who uh, make their like Instagram public and show like mm -hmm. what their day-to-day -day life is in the lab. Uh, unfortunately, I'm just, I don't think I'm the right type of person to be doing that. Sort of <laughs> Maybe one day you'll have your own uh, Monsters Inside Us YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> well, Denny, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here today. This has been really enlightening um, to learn about all the little creepy critter monsters inside us. I'm your host, Elizabeth Muller, and I'm here today with Yusuf Hassan, and our producer was Laura Benner. You have been listening to GradCast, the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. If you want to listen to us live on the radio, tune in to 94.9 FM. Maybe you've heard something today that's inspired you, or you want to get in touch and be on the show. You can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Did you like today's episode so much you want to hear it again? Well, you can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. We have select episodes on our YouTube channel or at gradcast.ca. Thank you for listening to GradCast. Have a good night.